You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Follow fresh on us this morning. Father, you want to come and you just want to ignite your love in our hearts this morning. Our love for you, our love for one another, Lord. So, Father, we just invite you into this place. We invite you into our challenges, our struggles. We invite you into those areas of our lives that oftentimes maybe we kind of neglect your presence or ignore or we just don't know how to engage or to ask for your help. And yet, God, you're here this morning. Father, we ask that you would just help to fix our minds on the things that are set above and not on the things that are below. That, God, no matter what we're going through this morning, no matter how great that challenge is, that, God, we would look to you and see that you are seated on your throne, that you are in the highest heavens. There's nothing above or beyond you. There's nothing too great that your power cannot accomplish. So, Lord, rather than start this morning below where our problems, our challenges, those barriers are this morning and looking up, Father, would you just direct our gaze to start at the top this morning to see you for who you truly are, to begin to experience your love, your grace, and your mercy in new and fresh ways this morning. That, God, we would know that you have never left us and you never will. To know that you're for us and that nothing is impossible with you this morning. That God, you would allow that to become the anchor for our heart this morning. That you would allow that to become the foundation on which we stand this morning. To see you high and lifted up to see you that your train fills the temple to see the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world to see him seated at your right hand this morning victorious the overcomer who has overcome all things And that spirit that raised him from the dead, that dwells in us. And that makes us overcomers as well this morning. So Lord, allow that identity to begin to transform our hearts, our thinking. We're not defeated. We're not overcome. Because of the one who lives in us. God knows all things that are going on in our lives. 
He knows those deep, dark places where fear and anxiety, where doubt lives. And he's not turned off. He's not frustrated by those. He's just waiting for us to yield and to surrender, to open those places, to allow him to come in, to begin to do a deeper cleansing, a deeper work in our hearts this morning. We release our fears, our doubts, our worries, our anxieties this morning. We just thank you this morning, Father, that you are here and that you care and that you love us, that you see us and you know us. And your desire this morning is to draw nearer. We thank you for that, Lord. We welcome you. We want you. We desire you in those places this morning. To manifest your spirit in our hearts, in our spirits this morning, Father. That in those places of regret, we would begin to rejoice. In those places of sadness, that there would just become this sweet, sweet aroma of your presence this morning. That we would have this sense, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That our hope, our salvation comes from you and you alone this morning, Father. We thank you for your power and your presence in this place. what you've begun here father your word says lord that you will you will promise that you will complete everything you've started father you will complete it and we thank you for that good work that you've begun in us this morning in jesus name we pray amen well, I want to uh, just kind of get right into the looking at the uh, book of John. I want to just kind of spend some time here, maybe like a couple of weeks or so, and just kind of uh, go through that New Testament book of First John. Now, like I said last week, a lot of times people confuse First John with the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John, and sometimes they'll confuse that, you know, First John um, with the uh, Gospel of John. Um, they're, they're different books, though they're written by the same author, uh, John, uh, who was one of Jesus' disciples. As a matter of fact, we believe it was the one uh, that Jesus loved. He 
kind of said of himself, his relationship with Jesus. And um, obviously, the Gospel of John is a much larger book than 1 John. Given that there are five chapters just in the book of 1 John uh, compared to 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and they're really also very, very different in terms of what they're covering and what they're talking about. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John really kind of focuses a lot on the life and the ministry of Jesus. What John personally observed as he kind of walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry years. As a matter of fact, Billy Graham would often say to people, if you're new to the Bible, new to the Christian faith, he would recommend that people would start reading in the Gospel of John given that it kind of really focuses on the divine nature of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, a lot of times they'll kind of focus more on the, the, the humanity of Jesus. John is unique in that he really does a lot to reveal and talk about the divinity of Jesus. Whereas the book of 1 John John is kind of really focusing on some very, very specific issues that have kind of arisen in the church. And they're issues that John is kind of familiar with, um, either because um, he has responsibilities or connections with the churches, the people, the things that are kind of happening there. So let me just kind of encourage you as we begin to look at this particular book of the Bible. If you haven't read it, or maybe you just haven't read it in a while, I would just encourage you uh, to do that uh, over these next several weeks. It's interesting because the first chapter is just 10 verses long. So, you know, even if you just read a chapter, uh, your first one, you're just 10 verses. And it's a great uh, book, and I'm looking forward to kind of just sharing some of the insights that are in there. So let me, before we get into any specific chapters or verses, let me just kind of give you an overview of the book of 1 John, because I think once you kind of begin to understand some of the context, some of what you read in there will hopefully kind of make a little bit more sense. Like I said, the author of 1 John is the disciple of John, one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus. This particular letter, 1 John, was probably written around 90 to 100 AD, and Jesus died somewhere around 33 AD. So 1 John was probably written about 60 years following the death of Christ. And that would put John somewhere around the age of 80 as he's writing uh, this. Now, Scholars believe this letter John wrote was not to just one particular church, but they kind of view it as a pastoral letter. So it may have been a letter that was, you know, just written and then kind of just passed along to a number of churches who maybe kind of were struggling and dealing with some of the same issues that John is attempting to speak to uh, there in that letter. Now, it's written prior to John being banished to the island of Patmos, and that's where he later received uh, the, the revelation, that last book of the Bible. And so given John's age, scholars believe he may be the only surviving disciple at this time. Now, I mention that because two to three generations 
have now passed since the days of Acts, since the founding of the New Testament church. And many of those who were alive during that time as, you know, the book of Acts chapter two is unfolding and the spirit, you know, of God is falling uh, on, on people. Many of the people who were alive during that time kind of believed Jesus would, you know, come back quickly. You know, so they, they, you know, they see him ascend, they watch him go up into the clouds, and they're kind of thinking, okay, he's gone, he says he's coming back, and they kind of believe it's going to be, you know, a relatively short span. And you can see why they would think that. And so probably two to three generations have passed, and many are now beginning to wonder what is going on. Where's Jesus? You know, why hasn't he come back yet? You know, when is Jesus coming back? And so many uh, believers you know, thought Jesus would have returned by now, and so what they have to begin to do is they're, they're adjusting their expectations. Okay, waning are these you know, fresh, exciting you know, days and, and wonder of the early church, and, and many of these Christians are now trying to kind of adjust, and, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we begin to settle into the established church? How do we begin to deal with the day-to-day -day, uh, issues, the day-to-day -day functions uh, of the New Testament church? I mean, you know, a lot of times if you run into issues uh, in the church back in those days, it was probably tempting to kind of think, well, we don't need to deal with that. Jesus is coming back any moment. You know, and so you often wonder, you know, there just kind of probably comes this point where they think, you know what, he hasn't come back. We gotta start dealing with some issues. And there were big issues that were kind of going on in the churches as John writes this letter. Now again, uh, I kind of alluded to this uh, last week. Um, in 1 John, we know uh, based upon the, the time, we, uh, the historians, scholars, uh, write about this, that the two main things that were really happening in the church at this time that really motivated John to write this pastoral letter was false prophets and false teaching. And one of the consequences of those false prophets and false teachings is that it was causing people you know, uh, to leave these New Testament churches that had been established by John and other disciples and apostles. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. How cool would it have been to like have the disciple John be your pastor? Or, or to be involved in a church that John is involved in? To have someone who was around Jesus you know, walked with him, talked with him, experienced all of the things that Jesus did, and to be able to have access to a guy who, who knew Jesus uh, so personally. I mean, you would think people would be flocking to a church like that. I mean, I would, we would. I mean, just to be around somebody who had been around Jesus. That would be so cool to spend time with him and, and, to, and to know what all he knew. And yet, despite John's past history with Jesus, you'll find there were people that were actually leaving these New Testament churches, just as we continue to see people leave churches today. And you know what? 
That's going to continue until Jesus comes back. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We lose sight of the fact that these are not just issues affecting us today, but these are issues that have affected the church from its beginning and throughout its history. They have been facing similar issues every generation faces. And we know this because look at what he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. And again, here's the thing. People leave churches all the time for a variety of reasons. And oftentimes, when it's happening to us, we tend to take it personally. All the while, again, it's just really easy to lose sight of the fact this happens all the time in churches in every generation, especially if you choose to stand for the truth of the gospel as John did. People will get offended and leave. And this happened to the churches John wrote to there in 1 John. Don't lose sight of that. And it will continue to happen until the return of Jesus. Again, it's just good to remember that. And oftentimes, again, when we're in the thick of it, when people are leaving, when, you know, when, they're, when the issues are red hot, it is just so easy to lose sight of that, to forget that, to kind of start taking it personally. But again, it's been a problem since the church first began, and it will continue to be a problem in this church age. Now, I've told this story before probably several times, but I'm hoping that maybe there just might be a couple of you in here that have never heard this that will appreciate the story. It's a true story, and it's about the brothers, uh, Charles and John Wesley. Now, they were the founders of the Methodist Church. And so as they were establishing the church, Charles Wesley, he was kind of the hymn writer. Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is one of the hymns that Charles Wesley uh, wrote. And uh, so he was kind of uh, more of the uh, hymn writer. He was a very, very pastoral. And so oftentimes he would kind of stay back and he would kind of just be the pastor of the church. John, his brother, he was kind of the circuit rider. He was the one that would get on horseback and he would just go all over preaching the gospel everywhere. So he was kind of the itinerant pastor. Charles was kind of more the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of here, I'm the pastor of the church. And so whenever John would come back from circuit riding, one of the questions he would often ask his brother Charles is, have we had any blessed additions? Meaning, you know, do we have new people coming to the church? Well, one time John came back and he says to his brother Charles, he says, have we had any blessed additions? And his brother Charles looked at him and said, no, but we've had some blessed subtractions. <laughs> John would kind of think the same thing as, as he's dealing with these false prophets, these false teachings that are trying to infiltrate the church, that as these people are leaving the church, again, not all of them, but especially the ones that are creating difficulty in the church, John would look at this as a blessed subtraction. So let's look at kind of just, and again, we lose sight of that. You know, you think about, you know, Jesus's ministry, 
You know, there were times where, you know, the crowds, they flocked to Jesus. I mean, we, we remember, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, I mean we, we can sit here and talk about all of the great miracles and wonders that Jesus did and the crowds that those, that those drew, and rightly so. But again, we oftentimes forget that there were times where Jesus is teaching and he's preaching uh, to the crowd. And I think of John chapter six is one of those places, you know, where after the feeding of the 5,000, he kind of starts getting into the teaching of the body and the blood uh, and he, and he kind of lays it out there um, and just says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And it says the reaction of the crowd was, it says that, that many left and followed him no more. And what's interesting is that's John chapter 6, verse 66. It said people followed him no more. And what was Jesus' response? He looks at the disciples and he said, will you go too? And that's where Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So again, oftentimes we kind of forget there were high points in Jesus as many where the crowds were there, they're on fire, they're flocking to him, and there are times where they, they just left. They couldn't handle what he was saying. So let's look at some of the specific issues that were facing the church John was addressing. I kind of alluded a little bit to this last week. There was the established belief of Gnosticism. And again, back in the New Testament churches in the very beginning, a lot of these cities were just, there was so much idolatry and false religions in there. And, and you know, Christianity kind of is planted in the midst of just a lot uh, of pagan religions. And, and one of those uh, false teachings was, was Gnosticism. And it was attempting to really kind of infiltrate into the New Testament church, especially the one that John is kind of addressing here in his letter. And one of the basic underlying beliefs of Gnosticism, and Gnosticism is just kind of, it means to know. Um, and one of the underlying beliefs of Gnosticism was that only the spirit was good and all other matter was essentially Evil. Now, the ramifications of that belief was that the Gnostics despised the world and everything in it, everything around them, and that included the human body because it was made up of matter. And so the Gnostics kind of viewed people as being imprisoned. Your spirit was kind of imprisoned. It's, it's locked into this human body, this flesh, which they saw as evil. But they also believed that every person contained the spirit. And, and that they said that really had the potential to be good because that came from God. And so the, to the Gnostics, the human body being made up of matter was essentially evil and it had to be dealt with. Something had to be done um, uh, with the human body. And again, this is not just some minor belief that had no impact. This belief uh, in Gnosticism led many people uh, to uh, extreme forms of abusing and kind of punishing their bodies. And so one of the ramifications of that was because they viewed the body as evil, uh, they kind of began to engage in very, very dangerous forms of fasting, denying the body proper food and nutrition. There were some um, that would even go so far as to mix dirt and ashes 
into their food because they believed to enjoy food was sinful because it was bringing pleasure to the body. You ever just had a good hamburger and it's just like, oh man, that, that just feels good, you know? And to them, that was wrong. That was, that was bringing pleasure to the body, which they viewed as evil, so all of that kind of stuff was to be shunned, okay? So fasting is a biblical discipline, but it is never, ever for the purpose of punishing or destroying our bodies. They also believe that, you know, all sex out of, outside of procreation was sinful because, again, sex was never designed to bring pleasure to the body. They denied themselves medical care. They believed physical suffering uh, was one of the ways or just was one of the consequences of having uh, this evil human body. Uh, usually around Easter time, you'll kind of see uh, stories about people who have nailed themselves to crosses or they'll, they'll allow themselves to be uh, beaten with whips as a way of atoning for their sins or to punish themselves um, for things that they've done. So again, we, we still see these forms of abusing uh, the physical body uh, even today. So, so Gnosticism ultimately led people to just engage and pursue very, very destructive behaviors. Now to the Gnostic, the, the, the aim and the goal of life was to separate the spirit again, which they believe had the potential to be good, you know, that it came from God. The ultimate aim and goal was to separate the spirit from this uh, evil contained in the human body. And they believed this could only be done by, by secret knowledge, by elaborate rituals, um, which only the true Gnostic could provide. So we have the answers to, to these problems, but you need to become as one of us to get that uh, secret knowledge. How convenient, right? It was their deep conviction again that all matter is evil, the spirit alone is good, and the pursuit of life was really to liberate man's spirit from the evil flesh. And again, it's important to beware, and I'm, I'm telling you this to highlight this point, it's always important to beware of people, churches, ministries that claim to have special truths or have received special revelation that's only been given to them. Mormons do this with the Book of Mormon, written by Joseph Smith, you know, and so uh, in addition to the Bible, we also follow uh, just as, you know, uh, Faithfully, we follow the Book of Mormon and the teaching of Joseph Smith. And so that's kind of just an example of where you see that in our culture today. I remember when I um, started out my first appointment in the United Methodist Church in 1994, there were a number of men in this particular congregation who were an active part of the, of the local Masonic Lodge there. And I did not know a lot about the Masonic Lodge and what they believed, so whenever I would kind of ask them questions about it, 
um, what they believed, I was, you know, kind of just told, you know, we just meet together once a month. We kind of have dinners. You know, we do, uh, you know, fundraisers, and, you know, we try to, you know, support, uh, you know, local charities, uh, that kind of thing. And so it just kind of seemed very social to me. Okay, this is just kind of a group of guys getting together, enjoying one another's company, and kind of doing great things. As a matter of fact, they were so eager for me to become a part of the Masonic Lodge. They were constantly inviting me. Oh, we, we want you to become a member. At one point, it, they got so, um, they, they just got so persuasive in, in wanting me to join that they offered to pay for all of my dues, all of my fees, and, and I thought, well, that was really nice of them, you know? I still didn't know a lot about it, um, but again, I, I, I kind of just kept pressing them. You know, it, be, before I join, I really kind of want to know, you know, what is this about? You know, what do you believe? What does it really mean to be a Mason? And I just kind of had like this check in my spirit, okay? And I would hear things like, well, we really can't tell you what all we believe until you join. And then you kind of just have to go through these, what they call degrees. They were kind of levels or stages of classes, of rituals, uh, oaths and secrets. And long story short, uh, just in my conversation with them and just kind of doing my own uh, kind of research on that, I started kind of finding out that there were like 33, at least 33 levels or degrees, and each level kind of represented more knowledge, more privileges. Uh, it also kind of represented, you know, taking more oaths. And uh, I also learned that as a beginning Mason, and I was actually able to talk to somebody who had gone to, that goes here, uh, that had started out in the uh, initiation rite uh, of the Masonic Lodge, and he was telling me that it, it, the, just the initiation to, to get started in it, um, he told me, he said, I had to strip down to my underwear, and then he said, I had to put this bed sheet on to kind of just drape it over me, and then, and then he said, you kind of stand there, and you start, you know, giving these oaths, and you start making, you know, these commitments, you start taking these promises, and he said the thing was, was that what they did as he's kind of going through all of this was that they had a dagger, and it was pointed at his heart, and, and they said when they kind of got through, one of the things that, they said, that was part of the initiation, they said to him, if you ever, ever reveal any of the secrets of the Masonic Lodge, that the dagger in the heart represented that we, we're, we hope that you will have a heart attack or that your heart will be cut out. I was like, are you serious? He said, absolutely. And so they, they kind of, in the very, very beginning of that, they kind of begin to speak uh, curses over you. Again, my point here is, is, is that the Gnostics kind of were like that as well. They believed, they held all of the secrets and the keys to the universe and enlightenment, and the only way that you would discover that, the only way you would reach that ultimate aim and goal in life and having your spirit you know, separated from your evil flesh was you had to receive the knowledge, the revelation that only we have.
Now, some of the people who viewed themselves as Gnostics, uh, they had been a very, very active part uh, of the New Testament church. And, and so, these are some of the people that John identifies there as having left the church. That's why I said, you know, John would kind of look at that like, you know, uh, Charles Wesley. Some of these people that left, these were blessed subtractions because they were causing division, they were bringing false teaching, they were leading people astray. And John refers to them there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. He says, there are many false prophets in the world. And they weren't just outside the church, but they were also trying to infiltrate their way into the church. And, and that continues to be true today, just as it was when John wrote this. There are a lot of false prophets in the world today. There are a lot of false prophets that are trying to infiltrate the church of today. What was true then is just as true today. And although these false prophets had left the church, they continued to promote their Gnostic teachings within those uh, communities. And again, they were attempting to seduce and to draw people away from um, the believers uh, there in the community of faith. And that's why John writes there in 1 John 2, 26, he says, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who wanna lead you astray. John saw what was happening, and, and he's warning and alerting the people of the church at that time. He says, man, be careful. There, there are some false prophets out there that are gonna try to lead you astray. And some of those false teachings included belief that denied the messianic identity of Jesus Christ. And again, John alludes to this in 1 John 2, And he said, and who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Now the word Christ in the Greek is the word Messiah. So you could actually translate that verse, and who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Messiah. So again, John is identifying specific people within the community of faith. And again, some of these uh, were also like, you know, Jewish leaders and teachers. And, and so you've got the Gnostics and you've got, you know, Jewish leaders who, who claim to uh, be born again. And they're kind of teaching, again, Jesus is not the Messiah. So, you know, John is, is uh trying to sound the alarm and letting people know there's false prophets out there, beware. Now regardless of where you go to church, and I'll, I'll tell people this uh, all the time, the one thing you need to ask, if, if you get on, you know, online uh, on, a, on a church or you get involved in, a, in a, uh, a ministry, it is always important, the one question that is the most important question you can ask of that ministry, that church, that pastor, is who is Jesus Christ? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Now again, if you get people on there and, and they're denying that, that Jesus is not the Messiah or that he's not sinless, you know, he wasn't God in human flesh, you know, he didn't atone for sin on the cross. I mean, anything that really kind of strikes at the heart of what Jesus came to do and who he was, again, you need to get out of those churches. You should not be involved in those ministries. So again, 
Um, John is, is sounding the alarm and saying, here's what some of these Gnostics, here's what some of these Jewish leaders and teachers are teaching. They're trying to tell you that Jesus was not the Messiah. And even more heretical than that, these false prophets, these Gnostics John was referring to were also denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Again, the idea of the incarnation is that God takes on human flesh and became a man. Okay, which is what we recognize and celebrate at Christmas, right? We celebrate the incarnation. God took on flesh and became a human being. It's the point of Christmas. Again, remember what I said earlier. What did the Gnostics believe? All matter, and that would include the human body, was essentially and utterly evil. And because of that, it would be impossible for Jesus Christ to be God and taken on human flesh. Why, why would he do that? Why would God take on something that is essentially evil? That's why you would never hear a Gnostic say, uh, 1 John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Gnostics, as well as other false prophets in John's day, believed in the absolute evil of the human body. And they just repudiated the fact that God would never allow himself to take on and be clothed by something so evil. And this is why John is so emphatic there in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet, and again, he's, he knows they're out there. They're in the churches. They're in the communities. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus came in a real body. Now, you begin to understand why he writes what he wrote there. He's speaking to a very specific issue that was happening there in the churches. That person has the spirit of Christ. So if you believe in the incarnation, that was one of the ways they would know that you had the spirit of Christ. But, he says, if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. So he's not only identifying them as false prophets, he's saying these are antichrist. They're against Jesus. They're preaching and teaching against Jesus. So again, when you begin to understand what the Gnostics believed and what they were teaching, then it makes sense why John would make such specific statements regarding the necessity of believing that Jesus Christ came in a real flesh and blood body. And, and the Gnostics, they were not alone in this belief. We see similar beliefs in the Muslim religion today. Muslims believe, and they will tell you, it is an abomination to them to even think that God would ever humiliate himself or denigrate himself by taking on human flesh. They just said it, 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 it wouldn't happen. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. There were also other false prophets there during the same time, and they're spreading a teaching um, called Docetism, and Docetists believed and taught that Jesus only seemed to have a human body. 
okay? He had kind of a supernatural body in such a way that as you look at him, it would lead you to believe that he has an actual flesh and blood body, but he doesn't. As a matter of fact, they were... um, one of the ancient writings called the Acts of John, and there were a lot of letters, a lot of books that were written out there by other uh, disciples, other followers of Jesus that never make it into the canon of of Scripture. This was one of those writings uh, that was very, very prominent. People were familiar uh, with it. And it quoted John as having said the following. They're they're quoting John that, that John said this about Jesus. Sometimes when I touched Jesus, he seemed to meet with a material body, but at other times the substance was immaterial or if... Uh, as if he didn't exist at all. Then they kind of went on to say, and, and, and they quote John as saying, you know, it was amazing because when Jesus would walk on the ground, he wouldn't leave any footprints. Um, and again, this particular uh, book uh, was rejected by the early church, again, just because of its allegiance to docetism and their belief in denying Jesus ever had a physical body. Now, again, I'm sharing all of this with you in a context of what John is up against here, what John is dealing with in the church. And again, we lose sight of that. We think, oh, back then it was just all, you know, uh, sunshine, rainbows, and cotton candy. It wasn't. They had a lot of, of issues, a lot of things that were going on in the church then, just as we do today. And again, sometimes we lose sight of that. And we think, oh, because we have problems that, you know, somehow there's something wrong with us or God has abandoned us. Not at all. It's just understanding every church and every generation has always had to face similar issues and challenges. And again, it's just important to understand because again, all of this, these beliefs, I mean, they have tremendous, significant fallout and consequences both spiritually and theologically. And and I'll kind of wrap up and we'll pick it up here next week. See, if if you could convince a believer in, in one of these New Testament churches that Jesus did not have a physical body. It then allows you to kind of begin to start undermining and chipping away at some of the other beliefs, um, you know, like, like, well, if he didn't really have a body, then could he really actually die on a cross? I mean, if Jesus doesn't really have flesh and blood, I mean, you would understand that it's kind of silly to think that his blood was shed on the cross, right? And, and so again, they kind of just begin to chip away at all of the these things. So it's kind of like a domino. You push one over and then pretty soon, you know, you just got a lot of dominoes falling and then people are being led astray. They're being led out of the churches and away from Christ. You know, so uh, again, if he didn't really have a body, then was he really resurrected from the dead? So you begin to see how you kind of just begin to chip away at that. This may be in part, you know, following the resurrection. This may be kind of why Jesus encouraged the disciples, touch me. You know, he said to Thomas, you know, you can, you can put your hand in, in, the, in my side. You can touch my nail-scarred hands. That may be part of that is just so that they were not taken 
off by this. You know, they, they weren't caught off guard um, by this. They were able to, to, to know from their experience. No, 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 no. Man, we, we touched him. As a matter of fact, you, you go to, uh, 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 look at how John starts the letter. This is what just fascinates me. Look at how he starts the letter the way he does. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. Now, to me, as I'm kind of reading that, I'm thinking, that kind of seems like a, a, a weird thing to say. Why would you say that? Well, when you begin to understand the things that were being taught uh, and, and the false prophets and the false teachings that were trying to infiltrate the church to say, Jesus didn't really have a physical body. It only seemed that way. And John's like, no, no, I actually touched him with my hands, not just before you know, before the crucifixion, but after the resurrection, I touched him with my own hands. I assure you, Jesus has a physical body. And so we'll, we'll kind of just uh, uh, pick that up there. But again, I, I just kind of want you to see as you kind of get into, you know, reading through the book of John. Let me assure you, everything that's in there is in there for a specific purpose. It's not just happenstance. John is speaking to some very, very specific issues and things that were attempting to infiltrate the church. And he has just some great, and we're, we're gonna get into these too, he has just some great exhortation uh, you know, on the love of God, um, the call to love one another. So there's, just, there's also some really just great exhortation in there that he has uh, for the body of Christ, and we're, we're gonna uh, kind of get into all of that. So let's just, let's stand together this morning. Thank you for being You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.